Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and my co-host, Matt Scott, is not with us today because he's bouncing around somewhere in Africa. I think Namibia right now in Land Rovers. Good for him, which means that it is just me and a very good friend of mine, uh, Brian Bass. Thanks for being on the show, Brian. Glad to be here. And and Brian is, in my mind, uh, the true Indiana Jones. He, he is an archaeologist, uh, Dr. Brian Bass, PhD from Edinburgh University, and a, a storied past and a lot of interesting experiences in his life that I think directly translate to our passions for travel and our passions for overlanding. So I think we'll learn a lot from Brian. There'll be a lot of fun topics to discuss, everything from knives to sportsmobile vans to, to watches. But he learned a lot in his life from the people that he's been around, including his father, uh, who was Army Special Forces. And tell me a little bit about your dad. Yeah, well, he uh, actually, even before that, he was a, a wrestler and then uh, he joined the 82nd Airborne and then re-upped. And uh, back then it was called the 77th Special Forces Group. Later on, it became the 7th Special Forces Group. So he was in in the military at that capacity. Uh, he got out and actually went to the 12th Special Forces Reserves, which is or was down in San Pedro area in, in California. And and shortly after that, transitioned to the movie business and became a professional stuntman. Yeah, which is such a cool story. And 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 Brian was able to experience a lot of that and experience that early Hollywood stuntman scene. And 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 what came from that is that uh, a funny little fact. But uh, Bo Derek is actually Brian's stepsister. So yeah, that, that's correct. My <laughs> my father's second wife is Bo's mother. Yeah, it's it's yeah. amazing. So there's these little anecdotes that you're all going to pick up during the podcast that I think make it really fun. It's it's made it such a joy to have Brian as a friend because we never run out of stuff to talk about. We 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 spent weeks driving around Uganda and Kenya, and we never once uh, had a had a, a quiet moment in the car because there was always so much to to chat about. Other than if we were just taking in a beautiful view, but tell us a little bit about your early education. What what made you choose to go to Edinburgh for your PhD? Well, before that, I was at San Diego State University and I did my undergraduate there uh, in anthropology, got a BA in anthropology there. And I started graduate school at San Diego State University. And there were a series of events that occurred where uh, it was announced by the head of the department that if at that time, if we were not finishing our master's degree in a certain amount of time, semesters really, that we should think about moving on or transferring to some other location. And at the time I was focused almost exclusively on, on coastal marine prehistory. And I was doing some archeology span just off the coast in La Jolla and La Jolla, the reserve that's, that's off La Jolla shores. And my supervisor uh, suggested that it would be good for me to possibly explore different avenues around the Mediterranean in something similar, insular and coastal prehistory. And this was when uh, Yugoslavia was still together. And so he had worked in ex-Yugoslavia. It wasn't ex at the time. And he basically hooked me up with a professor that he had worked with over there and through a series of just kind of happenstance, really, I was over visiting my brother, who at the time was at the London School of Econ, and uh, went to visit some friends that I had met working in Jordan. The stories are starting to go down the rabbit hole. Already, <laughs> I love but, it. I love it. So they were up at the University of Edinburgh and jumped on the train, went up there, and I was explaining to them my woes of what am I going to do? I'm not really through grad school yet, but I've been told I got to move on. And then one of them suggested 
that I could possibly transfer over and just go right into a PhD program. They have different uh, different parameters in the UK than we do uh, in in the US as far as teaching requirements and things along the way. So I borrowed a coat from somebody uh, and interviewed with the head of the department at the University of Edinburgh. That individual turned out to be my supervisor when I did finally come on there. But I also interviewed uh, in uh, at Reading and in Glasgow. And so in the end, it was just a choice of, it'll sound odd, but I kind of went with uh, the city that I liked the best. Wow. Uh, they they all have just great departments of archaeology. So that, that really wasn't, uh, and nobody was working in ex-Yugoslavia because by that time, Yugoslavia had, had started to come apart. And um, so I, along the way, did choose to pursue some field work on an island off the coast of Croatia in the Adriatic. And that ended up being the focal point of my PhD. And, and what were some of the highlights that you experienced, not only as an archaeologist, but as a traveler? I, I, I think I remember some of your stories of, of riding an early BMW back and forth between between yeah, school was, and, and the field locations. Yeah, it, it, it took on epic proportions for sure. I had a... Uh, was a Dell 386 laptop that was just the coolest thing ever. I mean, now it's just right. primitive by, by our standards as far as capacity and, and, and capability. But uh, every, at the starting of every summer, I'd load up uh, the R100 GS with, with all of my field research equipment, the laptop, clothes, pretty much everything for the next three months. And I uh, would ride from Edinburgh down to Newcastle, jump on a ferry, go over to Hamburg. And then from Hamburg, well, usually I'd spend some time with some friends who live in Hamburg. And then from there, right on down through Switzerland, stop and visit some friends at the university in Zurich, and then go from there down to Rijeka and get an overnight ferry. Sure. From there down to the island. Once or twice, I rode all the way down the coast. It was, there was a little bit of a time thing, you know, sure. especially getting, starting the summer research. I always wanted to get down there as soon as possible. And, and get my my feet on the ground and start the work. At the end of the summers, then I started to take my time. I think one one summer it took like two and a half weeks to get back up to Edinburgh. And oh, of course, good. my supervisor, you know, asked me about that. <laughs> What's going on? And is that when you first started to pick up the German language? Was that time? No, that was before that. Maybe I could say now in hindsight, it's fortunate. I, I can't say that I really liked it at the time, but my mother sent me to a private school for 12 years uh, down in the LA area. And uh, so back then um, there were uh, foreign language requirements. So we had Spanish, I had Spanish for six years and, and then had German for, for three years. And just so happened that uh, when I took German, that was from 10th to 12th grade, we only had about five people in the class and uh, they were all boys. And it was one hour a day, five days a week. Okay. And the teacher was a uh, 20 something woman who was quite strict with us. And by the end of the second week, she didn't allow any English in the class anymore. Okay. Total by the end immersion. Of, yeah. hundred percent. And a lot of play acting. And then by the end of the first year, we were conversationally fluent. And then by the end of the third year, she had us, we had exams where we would read a murder mystery story and then we had to answer 30 questions. What was the color of the hat uh, on the guy by the window in the train? And so you had to have not just an ability to read it, but to retain the vocabulary. Too. Yeah. And so, uh, and if you looked at my German grades back then, you'd see uh, a C plus. Uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, very middle of the road. It was hard. Yeah. Without sure. a doubt. Um, and it is a difficult language to learn, isn't it? It is. Yeah. There are some cases that English doesn't really 
uh, have anymore. Like for example, genitive. I mean, we really don't use it that much. And, and just the vocabulary and reflection of, of plural, singular and feminine, masculine, things like that, that English, that's why I think English is uh, at a basic level is so easy to learn. And that turned out to be fortuitous because your partner, she speaks German as well. Yeah, She's so, yeah. from the black forest. And that's amazing. we actually met in the German language at, so a, su- cool. at a supermarket. <laughs> so great. Yeah, that is so great. So then you started spending time in, in ex Yugoslavia, which I would suspect was ripe for discovery as an archeologist. Yeah. The, the situation there before Yugoslavia broke up, there were definitely uh, people working from, from the outside, uh, a lot of British teams working, or I should say a few British teams working on some of the islands and immediately adjacent coast. Um, and then also, of course, Yugoslav archaeologists. But at that time, unlike places, let's say like Greece or Turkey, I hate to use the term, but it was, it just wasn't picked over. Sure. Uh, so, so on any given day, if you, for example, on the island where I did my PhD, um, I, I don't know how many sites we ended up recording, but it was well into the hundreds. And that's just on this one island. And these were unrecorded sites. And how big is this island? How long is it? Why does it? It's about tip to tail. It's about 50 kilometers long, including some little islets. So it's, it's, and that's long enough. Is that Corchula? Corchula is that island. Yeah. And at the time, I think that some properties started to become available. So you made a very early hedge and very did, bizarre. Did, yeah. Didn't you get, you pick up some, some houses there? It was, it was a little bit later on, but uh, yeah, I put out the word, you know, if anyone knows anything and I just kind of discovered that location. Um, looks beautiful. It is. It, it's a beautiful part of the world. It was a Riviera long ago, man. It's a crossroads. It was a crossroads in antiquity. Uh, it was a crossroads between Venice and, and the Ottoman empire. I mean, it, it's just, the food, the culture, and I'm, I'm specifically referring to the islands. Um, it's just, it's just great. Yeah. And, that sounds uh, fascinating. Things are familiar, but not exactly like it is back home. And I don't mean just back home, California, sure. but even Northern Europeans come there and it's, it's familiar, but at the same time, you know, within two minutes, you can be in some village where other than the paved road, it's time is still standing still, or it's maybe sure. 300 years ago. Oh, that's amazing. And then did you find that the archaeology is what inspired you to travel or was it your love for travel that then dovetailed in the archaeological work? That's an interesting question. I'd have to backtrack on my answer and give some background. Sure. I hadn't really traveled that much. Now I'm, I'm excluding like when I was I think about two, my parents worked on a project. My dad worked on a project in London, but I don't really remember anything back that far. And when I was still at San Diego State University there, they had a semester in London that you could sign up for. Nice. And I just assumed that I got a flyer for it and I threw it in the trash. And at the time I still had my uh, grades and other mail sent to my mom's house up in L.A., Uh, mainly because I had moved a bunch of apartments and it just seemed easier to just have it all funnel into one location. And so she called me on the phone. This is all pre-mobile phones, of course, called me on the landline and said, Hey, did you see this thing about the semester in London? And I said, well, you know, I mean, we don't have that kind of money, you know, for me to go do something like that. And she said, did you see the part about sort of a scholarship and, and money that the Cal state system will provide uh, every month or week. I can't remember. I think it was weekly. We got 40 British pounds a week uh, as a stipend. Um, Back then a a pint of beer was 90 pence. I wasn't 21 yet. So I said, well, I don't know, mom. I mean, you know, it's, 
the flight and everything. She said, oh, I'll, I'll pay for that. And then maybe when you're done, I can even get you like a Eurail pass. And I hadn't even pondered any of this. Right. Ever. You but know, she encouraged you to oh, do it. hundred percent. And then, and then that was it. After that semester in London, I, she picked up a, for me a, a two month Eurail pass. And then I had a backpack, early, low pack, sure. you know, that, that I had packed to the gills with stuff, you know, because I started in, in before April traveling or around April, I guess. And, and so it was already, it was cold still up in Northern Europe and I wanted to get down to the Southern climbs. And, and so after that two months of just traveling with this Eurail pass and sleeping rough and having like a very fixed budget. Sure. I mean, I, I had a, I got a, an American express card at the, uh, San Diego state university. It was a student bookstore at a $500 limit. <laughs> and I had maybe bought a pair of shoes or something back home and then paid it off. Right. And I was really stoked. You know? <laughs> like, it was like a pair of Chuck Taylors or something, <laughs> sure. 38 bucks. And that was the only time I'd ever used it. And, right. um, back then I know people, uh, and, and myself included traveled with uh, travelers checks and sure. combination of cash, but this was, you know, pre European union borders were still up. And, uh, that would have been such an amazing time to see Europe. And I, I was traveling there about the same time that in fact, my, my early travel inspiration is a similar story. I was in the military though, and I got assigned to Southern Italy and this was still, you still got the lira. This was still very much closed borders. But once you start to experience a place like Italy, which you've experienced a lot in your life, it completely opens your eyes because in the United States, we don't have, we have a lot of, of prehistory. We have a lot, there's a lot of history in the United States, but there isn't a lot of the history that we are, we find directly familiar, like um, the Roman history and the things that we learn in school. We don't learn a lot about the history of, of the North American, American continent. And I remember being there and, and walking the streets of Rome or seeing the Colosseum and being wide-eyed, absolutely amazed, shocked, at how cool the world was. And I remember when I left Italy, the only thing I could think of is how do I make this a part of my life? hundred percent. And that was, that's what happened to me. Uh, as a matter of fact, before I even did the two months Eurail, uh, when I was still uh, at school in, in London, one of the uh, professors, he was actually a professor from San Diego state. And at that point I had been studying political science. I was international relations. Sure. Uh, I wasn't studying archeology span completely yet. But the courses that transferred back to San Diego State were mostly anthropology and archaeology classes that one of the professors from San Diego State was teaching there. And at the end of the uh, semester, he said, Baz, you're a good kid. You seem to get really good grades in my class. Uh, why don't you come and work with me in Jordan next summer? And I probably said, sure, OK, but I hadn't traveled around Europe yet. That was you know, just like three days before I jumped on the hovercraft and went across to the, to the continent. And, uh, and then after the two months of backpacking around Europe, all I could think about was what's going to happen next summer going to Jordan. And that that was it. I had, like, I had brain juice coming out of my, my ear canal. It just was blown away uh, by traveling and, and that was it. Hook was in. And you and I, we both grew up in Southern California, which is relatively multicultural for the United States. And there's, there's a lot of crossroads of language and, and cultures that you experience in Southern California. But I remember being completely shocked by how different it was and how much I loved the fact that it was different. Oh, without a doubt. Without yeah. a doubt. Now, I would think with your specialty being prehistory and being coastal, 
the the sea levels have changed significantly throughout human existence. So did you have to do diving to explore sites or was that not part of it? Of course, I made made it part (laughs) as often as I could. Um, At that time, when Croatia became independent, there weren't dive shops around the island. People had compressors, people had scuba gear. But oddly enough, the few times that I did dive during my PhD research, it was old school twin tank, twin steel tanks, single tank, uh, no buoyancy equipment at all, just weight belt, jet fins, and you just had to be a good swimmer. I mean, looking back on it, I mean, it surely violates most of what you learn as far as safety uh, (laughs) as, as a, uh, as a basic sport diver. But I I had also become a, a scuba diving instructor back at San Diego State University. So you felt comfortable pushing those limits a little bit? Yeah. I, there was obviously certain things that I needed to make sure, like, okay, does this tank have air? And is it actually <laughs> compressed air and right. not part of the exhaust? Uh, yeah, um, or whatever. Yeah, yeah sure. So I, I did some some marine archaeology. Um, most of it was actually with uh, just math, mask, snorkel, and fins. Oh, interesting. Um, because anytime that you would find uh, on land, say like a Roman villa or the remains of a Roman villa or, or some Greco-Roman uh, artifacts, uh, guaranteed if you went offshore, you'd find more, you, you'd find more. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and because sport diving hadn't really taken off at that time, this is in the mid nineties, didn't have tour operators or anything going out. So it was, it was definitely possible to identify, for example, amphora fragments on the, on the seafloor. And wow. yeah, I mean, obviously it just goes in conjunction with you find what you find on the land, but, uh, I tried to do it as often as possible. Back then, though, there wasn't the active marine archaeology that's occurring now. Uh, yeah, that sounds fascinating with, with how much that would correlate to what your specialty was. Yeah, and, and it makes me think, too, when you and I were traveling through Uganda and Kenya, we, you know, we had plenty of adventure on that trip. And those that are listening, you can find the story in, in Overland Journal or you can find it on Expedition Portal. And we'll put a link in the show, show notes. But we, we ended up doing essentially an illegal border crossing into Kenya because what it showed that it was a border crossing on the map. But by the time we got there, it was very clear that it wasn't. So then the local, local militia found us and sent us off to the police station. There's, there's a lot more to that story. But we ended up going down to Lake Turkana, which is this very ancient place in Kenya. And that it's a natural occurring lake. There is, there is some water management now, but there would have been a lot of early human that were, that were traveling in that area or living in that area. And we pull off down this dirt road and we find this little spot to camp and, and we start setting up camp. I'm putting up the roof tent and Brian's walking around and tell me, tell me what you found just walking around where we were camped. Yeah, that, that one, that's probably I couldn't say the highlight of my career because I wasn't physically doing archaeology there in in a professional capacity. But as a prehistorian, finding a uh, an Acheulean hand axe in in the actual setting, sure, is is that's beyond the holy grail. Yeah, uh, and and the other thing is, I guess my my specialty is early Neolithic, sort at the onset of humans domesticating uh, animals and crops. And this, this is way before that. This is, I mean, this is probably Homo habilis left it. So it's not even the same species of, of Homo. Yeah, uh, sure. And just finding it there. I mean, it was just like I had studied. 
about Louis Leakey and Richard Leakey <laughs> and everyone else working in, in, in Old Divai and in yeah. the greater Lake Turkana area where that's the cradle of civilization. That's where, where humans learned and developed and first became aware of their environment. And specifically that, that hand axe, it's not just that there's a continuity of sorts from, from then until now, as far as, as an edged tool or a chopping tool. But it's very clear that unlike, let's say something like a higher primate, where they'll use an expedient tool, a stick or something to get, to get uh, some termites, humans not only would prepare the tool ahead of time, then use it, then keep it or curate it and then use it later on. But they also had an awareness of the materials sure. that were better that would to, last longer, that would last longer, sure. the more optimal materials. And this was back then too. Now, the unfortunate part is that we don't have, usually we don't have uh, from that period, uh, surviving things that are artifacts that are made out of wood or bone. They, they tend not to survive the archeological record. So we're obviously, we're, I'm assuming that we're skipping out. We're missing right. out on, on a whole, another part of the toolkit from back then. But, but nevertheless, finding that, that hand ax was, and you guys were Cracking beers, I think, and and, yeah, and they were and working. Stanley was they were wrenching on one of the G wagons. They were, you know, which which to me was was also I was still blown away. You probably didn't hear too many words from me at that moment because I saw uh, Stanley and, and Franz open up the, the the toolbox, and there are these spanners and and screwdrivers, and and then I'm looking at this tool. This is what started it all. It did, and then here we are with these guys wrenching on an on a motor. Yeah. And there's the procession right there of, of humans and ingenuity sure. and, and materials and tools and usage of tools. And I remember when I, cause once you started to describe to me, cause you didn't just find the ax, you found maybe a scraper as well yeah, yeah, there and some, some small tools. flint pieces that may have been used for spears or something like that. And it was all around the area. And I, and I look at you and I say, Brian, how in the world are, is all of this here? And And I remember what you told me is, Scott, the same reason why you picked this campsite is the same reason they would have picked the campsite. It was protected from the wind and it was, it had these stone wall, kind of these natural stone barriers on each side. You could see that there would have been water flowing um, in this one area right next to where we were camped. And you said the same reason that I picked it and we picked it is the same reason however many years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And millennia ago, they would have picked it. You have obviously time is moving in one direction. You have geomorphology and you have vegetation changing and climate changing. And I don't mean from the recent type of climate change, but I mean just over time. Right. But at the, at the same time, when you look at that landscape where we were, you can see that there was kind of a, an upgradient area that was kind of out of the low setting and guaranteed that was why various people probably found that little encampment uh, including us. And about, as, as a, about how long ago haven. do you think they would have been there? It's hard to say because that, that was Even totally out of context, but yeah, you know, sure. let's say 1.7, 1.5 million years. I mean, this is, this is going way back, way back. Yeah. That's, ama- that's I mean, that, amazing. That tool did, that tool did, it was used. Sure. Up and closer until closer to modern times. Now, I don't mean modern times. I mean, let's say like going to a hundred thousand years ago, plus sure. something similar, but was used, but it was very clear, obviously, to a student of archaeology um, and somebody who studied it and had it hammered in my head and and had courses on it that and 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 you're at ground zero for finding that 
right? That, that's where the material is supposed to be from. Which obviously leads to an important thing for us to talk about in this podcast is that as travelers, we're, we do interact with ancient cultures and we interact with these archaeological finds in our own mind. And I think about the to- many, many times in my travels that I've come across something ancient. Just give the listener some some good pointers on making sure that we aren't doing any damage, that we're leaving it. Obviously, there's something as simple as take only photographs or, or memories and, and leave only footprints. But um, what are some things that we can do to make sure that we're not damaging these sites, that we're not creating an impact that will affect future digs or future assessments of an area? That's, that's definitely a good question. And it's something that I get asked frequently. And if I had to qualify it before any kind of explanation, I would say that people need to be aware that there are international, national, and local level laws, ordinances, regulations that protect those resources. And there's a reason for it. It's not to stop future Indiana Jones adventurists from going out, that they are finite resources. Right. So once they are removed or gone or destroyed uh, and t- or taken out of their context before they've been studied, well, that that's it. It's over. Yeah. And there aren't that many resources that we come across on a, on a regular basis that are similar um, I mean, obviously you can you know, say mining, uh, ore or something like that is it's at least on our planet. Those are also finite too, but you can also recycle things, but, but you can't recycle or make an artifact once it's been removed from its yeah. setting. And so people need to bear that in mind right off the bat. So if you think that, that, that stone tool that you found is going to be, oh, it's so small, I can fit it in my bag. I'm going to take it back home. Just remember that for right off the bat, transporting some antiquities across uh, country borders, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah big uh, trouble. Getting caught with that in country, you're in trouble. You don't have a permit to be there, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just, the and list ethic- goes on and on. Ethically, too, once we disturb something like that, you've stolen that in a way from the locals that would like to know the history of their people and and maybe a local tribe, for example, or the archaeologists that work in that area, that that could have been a, a key piece of information that would have helped them tell a larger story. So for those listening, we do interact with antiquity in our travels. Let's make sure that we respect it in the utmost and leave things where we find it. Even avoid picking things up unless you're trained in, in how to do that. I just leave things exactly as I find them. There are some good some good resources and guides around this subject, which we can link in the show notes. But let's just remember that it is such a gift for us to experience those places Think about the next traveler that's going to come along. You want them to be able to experience it in the same way that you did. I, I remember just going into Anasazi ruins and and the mats are still on the ground. The corn cobs are in the corner and the pots are still in one piece. And I remember my breath being taken away to see that it looked like they had left 10 minutes before. And I just enjoy, I took it in and I didn't even go inside because I didn't want to disturb it. And it was purely by happen chance that I, that I was hiking down that Canyon. And we just have to remember to leave things as good or better than we find them. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing to keep in mind, I think is that it's easy to have the view that well, I'm just going to take this one piece of pottery. It's really small and it's going to be like my memento of, of visiting this archaeological site. And when you put it in a greater context and take a satellite view of that, let's say a thousand people did the same thing. Sure. Then, then there's no pottery there anymore. So now you've removed 
not just out of context, but it's, it's not like you took a thousand pieces of pottery and put them all together and removed them. They've all gone to somebody's mantelpiece, sure. falling on the floor, the dog eating it. Right. It's, it's not just out of context. It doesn't mean anything to the greater, greater humankind. And I think that that's also important to, to bear in mind, which is our common history. And so it's, it's, it's not just that the locals might want to know more about, about their past uh, or where, where they've come from and helping them out to understand, you know, where they're going, but, but it's, it's, it's collective past. All, all of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why, for example, that, that, that hand ax right. that, that we found in, in Kenya. I mean, that's, it's so poignant because that, that is the beginning that, of all of it. Yeah. For everybody, for, for a pocket knife I'm, I have in, in my trousers right now to, a pocket knife that somebody has, uh, uh, who's, who's in Kenya now, right. there's somebody in Russia, some, somebody in, in Asia, you know, the, the, the knife that they have in their pocket is, is it's, that's the heritage, right? It's, it's collective and there's no, there's no other way to put it. At some point you need to do the right thing. And a lot of times doing the right thing, you know, especially when nobody's looking and that does happen a lot when you find, especially when you're remote yep. and you find things, there's nothing wrong with photographing it, checking it out. These days with the internet, let's say we, we found something remote. I, I can get on the internet and type in Anasazi specialist sure. or Southwest prehistorian and come up with probably more than a dozen professors and grad students that specialize at and say, Hey, look, we found this site. You know, it was, it's, you know, a mile from the known one, but it was just kind of, here's the coordinates. You know, yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, go check it out. And which, uh, leads me to, a little bit more of an overland topic, which is you call your sportsmobile like the archaeologist backpack. And I think that that would be fun to talk a little bit about. You have you have a, a sportsmobile and you have a Tacoma that you had a long time. And then you just recently acquired a, a Land Rover LR4. But tell us about your sportsmobile. It, it is definitely one of the more unique van builds I've ever seen done. And it reflects a lot of your experience and time in the field. And there is an article on that as well, which we'll link in the show notes. But tell us a little bit about your van. What what year is it? What motor? Yeah, it started out, I think even before that, just wanting to identify a platform that could be used also as an office, like a, like a field office uh, in, in a true sense of the word where you could sit down, type, you know, your, your laptop, you didn't have to start the motor necessarily to or drive around in order to uh, recharge your, the batteries in your laptop or, sure. or other equipment that you have out in the field. So you can sustain yourself. And oddly enough, about half of the time I'm using this, it's parked outside of the archive. It's not out in, in the dust, right? Literally I have it parked in the two hour zone. And so I'm sitting in there, uh, making sure that I've taken all of the copies of maps or, or coordinates or things like that for surveys that I'm working on. And it's a comfortable spot. I have a fridge in there, but I, I kind of, I hunted around for something that would be comfortable where I didn't have to necessarily get out of the vehicle as well. Not that, not that I'm doing like commando research in the middle of some city somewhere or some village, but it just appealed to me that I could kind of spin myself around, go into the back and do some work. So the platform that came to mind for working in the Americas anyway, was the Ford uh, E350. At that time, there were some different conversions that were out there. 
But uh, being in California and having seen a bunch of the more well thought out uh, four wheel drive conversions that Sportsmobile had done, I went with with their conversion. But at the time they did the conversion, they put on their penthouse top and the Illuminous bumpers front and, and rear, their Trojan bumpers. And then that was it. It was it just had two front seats and the whole thing was empty. Drove it around for a while. My mom joked around that she got in it one time. She's like, ah, this is like the, the bakery delivery truck yeah. or something. Yeah. And, and so we drove it for um, well over a year, year and a half, maybe nothing in it. Went skiing, took it everywhere. And all along the way, I started drawing out a uh, painter's tape, blue tape, uh, where things could be, how I can have seating and storage and other stuff. And also staying cognizant of uh, gross vehicle weight rating and, and what you could really do with it. Because that for me is is paramount, no matter what seem, vehicle I'm using. Yeah, it does seem um, very minimalist. And you can also tell how much time you've traveled off a motorcycle because <laughs> it, it isn't it isn't overdone. It's very one of the things that I think is most clever about your van is the is the cots that you integrated into the panels. Maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah, they're uh new old stock Huey helicopter seats. And they weigh, I mean, almost nothing. I mean, they're, they're obviously they're, they're made there and they're, I would say fire retardant, the material. Sure. So they don't add a lot of weight to the vehicle. It's, it's completely negligible. Actually the frames that, uh, AT Overland made, that was the actual weight that really got added sure. in. But the advantage is that they can fold down and I can sleep on them, take a nap, whatever, uh, or I can just fold down one and have a bench to, to sit, sit on, on. Yeah. do some work on my laptop, um, whatever, or just keep it as a spot, another uh, ledge to put gear and I'm in a location. And then it looks like you've got a bunch of netting and, and lashing points all along the walls. So you can kind of configure the van to whatever you're doing. If you're going skiing, it's one thing. If you're out in the field doing archaeology work, it's another thing. If you're, if you're out traveling, doing overlanding, it's another configuration. Yeah, that's, that's correct. We, I won't say we went crazy with the, uh, the L track, but we definitely put it in all the location, conceivable locations where not just where you'd want to have a tie down or lash point, but, but what would be in the van? Because not everything is really strapped to the floor. It might be mm-hmm. something taller where you have to go from side to side. And as you know, in a van, more so than a vehicle, uh, than let's say something like a, a forerunner or something like this. But when you put on the brake, if, it's coming your way, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's coming forward. <laughs> definitely. True. And uh, even, even something, you know, is innocuous as like a, like a sleeping bag or a pillow or something. It, it's flying forward. Yeah. And so, so I really focused on that, having the ability to uh, lash down different items of weight or, or bulk uh, as necessary and then remove all that stuff. Not obviously the L track, but, uh, and then the other thing we focused on was where the L track is bolted in because you can, and where the screws actually went, because you can, um, of course put L track, like a strip of L track and it could be, uh, let's say a, a meter long and you only put a bolt at one end and the other end. And if you're, if your tie down point is in the middle, sure. you're going to have some issues right. if, if, if weight starts to you know work against you. So we focused on that as well. And it looked like you could even roll a motorcycle up in the back if you configured it the right way, if you took the right stuff out. Yeah. And, and, and if the bike didn't have some killer suspension or anything like yeah, that. If it wasn't yeah, too yeah. tall. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that Paris, that PD 100 that you had in Europe, is that the same one you have today? Yeah, I still have it. Actually, it's, it's had a very interesting trajectory. It started out as a California spec R100 GS 
they called it the bumblebee. I know that collectors are going to, you know, be pretty angry with me after they hear what, what, the, what would happen with the bike. But I had it for maybe a half a year, put it in a crate uh, at Marty's BMW, which I think is no longer there. It was down in, down the South Bay in, in California and area and shipped it to Edinburgh, literally shipped it. Like, I don't know, three months later, there was just a knock at my flat and there was this crate, you know, and I had a, the guy had a crowbar, I cracked it open and then they gave me some paperwork and then took off. And that was it. There's this California registered motorcycle. That's so the, the first, the first summer that I was heading down to Croatia, like I said, I went down to Newcastle, took the ferry across to Hamburg. And one of my buddies there, of course, he's a BMW freak as well. Airhead freak. Well, that, that was the bike then they're, they're, they were airheads. Still. Yeah. That was the bike. Yeah. yeah. And we got over, I got over to his, his, uh, house and, and he said, well, what's, what's all this stuff here? And it was, he was referring to some of the, um, the emissions stuff that's, sure. that's on the bike. And so I said, well, you know, I got it in California and it had smaller carburetors and all sorts of other stuff. And he said, man, we got it. get in the car. So we drove down to the main Beamer dealership in Hamburg and literally with the microfiche and working with the, uh, the parts guy, we got all the parts that should be on it for the PD. So at that time, it wasn't like you had to get on eBay or, you know, know a guy who knew a guy. You buy it at the dealership. Buy it at the dealership. The, the tank was, it was unpainted. It was gray, you know, just primered. All the little fairing parts, air box, uh, you name it. Uh, then it came to the smog stuff, which was, of course, perplexing, just like any kind of vacuum system, you know, like on some old FJ40 or something like this, you know, something's leaking and it's just going to run terribly. And we couldn't figure out the best approach. It wasn't running that well when we started snipping things on our own. So we made a few phone calls and talked with a mechanic down at the BMW factory. You can't make this up (laughs) down in uh, Munich. And he explained to us, he said, okay, somewhere under the seat, I think is the sticker that has all of the spaghetti that we add on for the California model. I think also the Swiss model had that, that emission stuff too. He said, you see everything there, remove it all. <laughs> remove all of it. <laughs> yeah. Remove all of it. Don't try and like, you know, connect this with that and think it's going to bypass this. So we spent, I don't know, it must've been like four or five days working on this bike. And then it just, it was transformed into the R100 PD, although it didn't start out life as that. Uh, but it's so cool that you still have it. And recently you bought another airhead, right? Yeah. Picked up a, it is a, a PD, although I did some research on, on its original title and it didn't start out life as a PD either. It started out life as just an R100 GS. Sure. Somebody picked up the PD parts. It still has some smog stuff on it. So yeah, we're, we're making that a project bike for, for the journal. So it's going to, we're going to do some interesting stuff to it. It's, yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's a very under under stressed motor. Sure. And so they last um, although I like to leave things original, but you can do stuff to that motor to get better performance out of it, higher horsepower and still keep it super reliable. And in North America that actually becomes a consideration obviously when you're when you're riding a, a motorcycle like that in in Slovenia or if you're riding it around Guatemala, you don't really need the extra horsepower, but North American roads. I mean, we're dealing with 75 plus mile an hour highway speed limits and, and crazy drivers driving at high speed. So it does, it does really help to have yeah, something people, that moves down the road. People don't think that are like some of my European friends, you know, that, well, you know, they get on the Autobahn and scoot around, but if you're just kind of, you know, zipping down to Spain for two weeks or something, things might be quite proximal. And then here, you know, sometimes you're on the road for two days before you get to the, at 75 miles an hour oh, before yeah. you get to the spot where you're going 
three miles an hour or less for the next week and a half on your, on your GS adventure kind of ride. And it's definitely something that, you know, we, we take into account here that maybe people don't overseas. That's right. Depending on the application. And in your, all your time with riding motorcycles, what, what are some of the key takeaways that you've, you've experienced from riding motorcycles? Well, one of the things I think is that you have to have an open mind. Now this is with a carbureted air-cooled bike. Now maybe it's different with more modern bikes where you can pull into a dealership and they can just fix it or, you know, they have more creature comforts, but I appreciate the fact that with, with the original manual and the Haynes manual, as long as you have the right tools, you just follow directions and you could do, sure. you could do anything. I mean, really, I, I ripped that thing apart. I wouldn't say that I'm super mechanical. I'm not, I'm not tearing apart the, you know, FJ 40 motor in my driveway, but, but with that bike, I've pretty much done most of the repairs. Speaking of Slovenia, by the way, one time I was visiting there and I was tinkering with the carburetors because <laughs> I thought I could optimize it. I was riding, you know, in the Alps. And, <laughs> sure. You're and, up and at altitude. Was, yeah. And I thought, okay, I could tinker with it. I didn't rejet it or anything, but I would just kind of tinker with it. And then, and I couldn't get it. They were synced, but it just wasn't really running optimally. And I was in Ljubljana in Slovenia and a colleague of mine, he's now the head of the Department of Archaeology at the university there. He said, hey, well, you know that uh, we have a similar model. It was the RS sure. that, that our police force uses for patrol. And uh, I know somebody over at the motor pool. <laughs> so I rode the bike over with all the gear on it and everything. I rode it over to this motor pool. And one of the, uh, one of the police mechanics dialed it back in. Of course, he had the little carb sink sure. tool. And I was just using my ear. He dialed it back in. But I think the other, back to the to your point of, uh, of things that I've learned riding a motorcycle, it forces you to be minimalist. You interrogate every item that you're, or maybe at first you don't, you just kind of load things on and sure. you know, you have your, and you realize that that's and, terrible. Yeah. 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 And, and you learn your lesson. Like, okay, wait a second. I had like three pairs of shoes yeah. and I, you know, I got my boots and then I want to, you know, maybe something's going to be upscale. So I want to have those shoes and that pair of tennis shoes or whatever. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't bring another pair of shoes with you, but you, you really interrogate the bulk, the, the necessity, the weight. Yeah. And it definitely, that parlays into your thinking with four wheels as well, four or more wheels, I should say. Um, and, and I think that it also helps you with your understanding when you travel about, okay, what do I really need? Obviously you want to be warm. You want to be fed reasonably well. You want to you know, hydrate. I mean, you want to be safe from the elements. But then after that, do you need like three different colored beanies? Right. Uh, <laughs> and it's amazing the stuff that we bring along. I think about now, I mean, I'm ready to leave for Africa in a few days and I'm going to ride a, a triumph down to Swaziland and the boots that I'm going to use to get on the plane are the same boots that I'm going to use to ride the bike. And how I deal with some protection is I have these D3O knee pads and shin guards that I use to augment the same boots that I get to wear every day otherwise, or drive a vehicle otherwise. And then I have these with all of these new barefoot style shoes. Now, these aren't the ones that, that have the individual little toes, but they're, they're very simple barefoot style shoes that you could use to the, take to the gym. You can have in a hotel or Airbnb or in the campground um, that make it a lot more comfortable to get out of your motorcycle boots and have a second pair of shoes, but they, they pack down to nothing um, because the top, the, you know, the, 
the top of the shoe itself has very little structure. So it's really just the footbed that you've got to compress down. And I have a strap that I compress them all down with. And it ends up being very minimalist that way. Whereas I've done trips in the past where I've brought the big heavy motorcycle boots. And then you're trying to figure out where am I going to put these things? How do I even get them on the plane with all my other gear? So wearing the same boot, wearing the same boots. I know uh, Lois Price and others that are, that do a lot of long distance international overland travel. They just wear heavy duty boots every day. They don't wear motorcycle boots uh, because then they can walk in them. They can hike in them. They can walk through town without looking like a stormtrooper. I agree. Yeah. My, my favorite in that regard. I mean, I stopped using motorcycle boots other than just going on a ride where that was it, like for the day out back, you know, in the same, same location. My favorites are, are Danner's. Yeah. Those are great because you can hike in them. I I mean, maybe I just, I'm not a fatalist or anything like that, but I always think, okay, wait a second. What if the bike broke down and I had to walk somewhere, right? But I want to walk in, in these sort of motocross esque ADV boots um, more than a mile or two or, or five miles, even a mile. I've had to do that. Even a mile would be rough. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I've had to do that and then learn the lesson. Like, Hey, that sucked. You know, I mean, I have blisters and, and sure. it's just uncomfortable. And then, um, and then of course the space, and when you just have the one and only pair, or if you have, like you said, you know, a pair of uh, collapsed tennies, sneaks or something like sure. that, then, and not looking like a stormtrooper. And it's, it's, you know, it, part of it is not so much the look like, Oh, f- fashion. No, it's it, blending it's in with the locals. So you don't in with look, locals yeah. And then, and just having, having equipment that's, that's multifunctional that just doesn't serve one, one function. Obviously your helmet is pretty unifunctional. And of course, even jackets and, and pants, you know, there's stuff now that really, if you're hard pressed to tell that it's actually made for uh, motorcycle travel. Yeah, no question. And they're getting more and more mindful of the fact that, oh, you can separate the armor from the jacket itself. And then you end up being able to wear the jacket as a hard shell when you're off the bike. Um, and it doesn't mean that uh, heavy duty ADV style boots aren't appropriate in certain scenarios. We're not suggesting that people be unsafe, but I just find that the more that the motorcycle trip is related to travel, the more I want to wear boots that allow me to hike back into that waterfall, or I can walk around a colonial village and experience the history of it without damaging my feet, trying to walk around in those ADV boots. But if I'm doing the trans, you know, the trans America trail, or if I'm going across Southern Utah um, in technical terrain, absolutely. I've got gnarly heavy duty motocross style boots. Cause you're trying to protect yourself from the, in, the inevitable drops that happen on the dirt. But, um, it is, I think it is so important to consider, even if you don't ride a motorcycle, how minimal can you go when you pack your vehicle? Even if you have a sportsmobile that has a ton of payload, how minimal can you travel? Cause then the sportsmobile even performs better. It does better off road. It gets better gas mileage. There's less stuff to distract you. If you, if the vehicle gets stolen, you've lost less stuff than if you just pack everything to the gills. Yeah, definitely. And that all comes from, from, from my perspective, traveling on a motorcycle. Um, and I love how disarming motorcycles are. I think it's because it's so relatable to everybody in the world. It's usually the first vehicle that they see even in very remote parts of the world, uh, motorcycles and a motorcyclist are very disarming. They don't, they don't come across as something official or, or tactical or whatever. Yeah. And I think, and most people have not only just seen one, many people have been on them or they know that, that that person riding that bike, it requires skill. Yeah. Uh, It requires that they, they pay attention to what they're doing and wow, 
he has a backpack and, and one little pannier filled with, you know, something. Yeah. That's like, Whoa, that's, that's crazy too. And, Very cool. and so yeah. it's immediately engaging. I think uh, so. And you don't have to be in some remote location. You could just be in some other town in your own state. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a connection there. there. Yeah, there certainly is. And it leads me to another thing that I know that you're, you're passionate about, which is edge tools. And that's obviously comes from our story earlier about finding the hand ax, but uh, what knife do you typically carry every day? What knife do you typically carry when you travel? What should someone be looking for in an edge tool like that as a traveler? Personally, I mean, there are a couple of aspects that you need to take into account. One, you can't always, you can't always travel with it or you're not allowed to. Right. You've got to put it in your, in your check. Yeah, and there are obviously there are different aspects of that too. Sure. Is it, it's just illegal or that, you know, you can't show it or, and, and there are plenty of people definitely more well-versed than, than I am that, that talk about that topic. And you can always pick up something, for example, once you get to your location and it doesn't have to be I some that u- a lot. U- uber cool, uber cool knife with the clip on it or anything like that. You go in any hardware store or even uh, some vendors of fruit and you can pick up uh, a knife that depending on what you're needing it for. I mean, if it's for, you know, it could be everything really. It doesn't have to be just for self-protection, but if you're just looking for a camp knife, you know, like a pairing knife that you get, sure. for, you know, under, under five bucks, maybe even less, you know, that's used by all the locals that you pick up at the local supermarket and everyone has one. And that's what they use to cut their fruit or prepare their meals and yeah. you're good to go. And the other thing is that that also is what everyone else has. So it doesn't, if, if you get to some checkpoint and they say, Hey, you know, take out the content your pocket. And there you have the same knife that they have and their parents have and their kids have back at home. Well, you know, you're, you're fitting in with that too. I think there's a lot of validity to that. I remember when, when you and I were trying to deal with the police after we got caught by the militia, that was excitement militia in, in, uh, in Kenya, but you know, they dump out the contents of one of the bags and there was a lot of like more tactical looking components. And this guy was convinced that you and I were spooks and we were, we were supposed to disclose. Remember it was, yeah, yeah. yeah, He he kept saying, you got to disclose your, your mission. And but meanwhile, it was, there was a titanium spork uh, and all these, some some paracord that wasn't like a non-standard, just kind of a fun color. And, uh, can't remember some one, one, two, three batteries, uh, what else was in there? Maybe my little shortwave radio. Yeah, there was, was just in, some stuff. It was stuff. in a bag that's shaped like a football. Like, but yeah, they went through that, and they and that just to happened know. to be the one that they picked was yeah. the one with with all the paracord with, and everything. And the spork. Yeah, you know? I know. What's I this? Know, I know. It was really. It's really funny, but it is important to, to to think about how you know. Oftentimes, we have access to these very cool tactical minded pieces of equipment, but if we travel with those things, how is that going to look? to someone that happens to go through our stuff and is it going to create an uncomfortable conversation or you're going to have to justify what you're doing? I mean, just you and I being military aged males in that part of Kenya already raises suspicion. And the, and the, 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 the mat, uh, khaki colored, uh, G-wagons, G-wagons. Yeah. that didn't help either. It didn't help at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Three of them in a line. Yeah. It definitely looked like a convoy and they, they were not convinced of our intentions, although they finally did let us go, but it was a spork that, they yeah. Went, yeah. What's your, what's your favorite uh, folder right now that you carry? I would say it's, it's a, a newer knife maker. It's uh, a friend of mine. He just retired from the Navy SEALs. And uh, the the name of his company that he started for his knife making is called uh, Gooseworks. 
and it's very small production. Cool. And he has been putting some time in with uh, noted makers like Ernie Emerson and Robert Trizula and, uh, and others, Bill Harzi, people like that, where they have both a, a folder and a fixed blade aspect to what they do. And he spent some time in those trenches, just kind of helping out and sweeping their shops and looking what they do and, and getting tips and tricks and things that didn't work early on. And, and I really like where he's coming from with his, with the design and also just the materials, minimalist kind of approach that he has. And uh, the fact that, that he puts razor sharp edges on, on the nights before he mails them out. He nice. spends a lot of time. I was up there in his workshop and he was showing me how he, how he sharpens everything. And I'm sure that uh, if you look at like the, the, the labor costs, which he's not doing it because of that, but he spends right. so much time sharpening each knife and getting, getting things right. So that when you use it, it's doing what you need it to do. It's a tool that's ready to go. Yeah. If it needs a slice, it's going to slice. You're not going to have to sit there and saw it back and forth. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, I, I also appreciate old school things like a Swiss army knife. Right. Um, it just goes into the pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're useful, you know, for a myriad of things around, around the camp and just what you're doing. And now see one of the things I, I almost never travel. It, it's very rare that I travel without checking something in. Right. Um, it kind of depends obviously on, on whether, whether it's work or play and, and what kind of work. And so I usually have a check-in bag, not always, but I usually have a check-in bag. And so obviously once you have a check-in bag, you can check in plenty of your pocket knives or other kinds of knives that, that you want or anything with an edge. And so other than the fact that somebody might go through it and take it in right. route, um, then you have your stuff. Yeah, but which it's is, not which always is nice. the case. I mean, sometimes you do have to, once you get there, you know, go track something down and, and that's, that's, that's part of the deal. And I do that. Oftentimes I'll just go get a folder pocket knife or whatever. A mutual friend of ours, Patrick Ma from Prometheus Design Works, he sells a little, a little folder that looks like a Boy Scout knife almost. And it's just very nicely put together. It's very discreet in the pocket. And that's typically the one that I'll toss in my check bag because it is totally unassuming. And if someone, if again, if you, if you clear your, the contents of your pockets out, it, it looks like a camp knife, very simple little tool. It's, it's very understated, but made in the United States and, and extremely high quality and a very sharp blade, which is, which is nice as well. Yeah. It's important to have. So then you also have to take into account that things might disappear. Yeah, and, for sure. And you might need to give something over. That's right. It might be taken before you even get there. You might have that that notification in your bag that says, yeah, we found this, we found this and, and we kept it or, yeah. or, or it's just not there. <laughs> it's just gone. And, uh, and so I, I always stress that with people when, when, you know, when they talk about, well, you know, I'm going to be working here or going there and what should I have? And, and I always say, well, whatever you have, you need to, it better not be super sentimental. And you not be like that's the one it. that your dad had or, or something or, you know, yeah, that's true. You, you have to be ready to give it over, lose it. Uh, not just mess it up because you can yeah. always like, you know, resharp. You should be able, that's the other point I think is important is you should be able to sharpen a knife because if it's not sharp, well, what's the point? Uh, unless, unless <laughs> yeah. it is the point yeah, that you wanted, sure. yeah. um, which is, you know, a different topic too, but, yeah. but you should have all those, those qualities, you know, so, you know, be able to get rid of it. And when we were, when we were in Uganda and Kenya, I think we had some Winkler knives yeah. with some fixed blades, right? What should people be looking for? around a, a fixed blade. One thing I really like about a fixed blade is that it, 
the immediacy of it and how it can be positioned on the belt, et cetera. Um, you don't need to open anything up. You just grab the handle and the knife is ready to, to do work. Tell, tell the listener, like, what do you typically look for in a fixed blade? Well, I mean, for me, now I have my own preferences for, for items and, and those knives that we had there were uh, the Blue Ridge Hunters by, by Daniel Winkler. And he's a master smith. So even though Winkler two knives is, it's more of it's water jet and it's, it's a production style, but he put a lot of time and forging and just as a one person show sure. to get to where he is now. And so everything, the ergonomics and it's saying, you know, I'm, I'm obviously talking about those knives that we, we had in, in Canyon, Uganda, but it, I think it pertains to pretty much anything with a fixed blade. Well, with the folder as well, but since we're talking about fixed blades, it should have an ergonomic aspect where it just, it feels right now. Like what you put in your hand might not be something that, that, that works, that for, works for me. Else, yeah, so sure. it's not just, well, okay, Scott gave it to me and I'm supposed to have this. Maybe it's not going to work for me personally. I always, I like to have fixed blades that have multiple capabilities. So I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily into carrying something where it has like, it's only defensive sure. in nature when I'm traveling. I want to be able to do other things with it. And it might be just slice an apple. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, everyone says, Hey, breakfast is served, you know, and then you can slice a piece of butter off of the bar and put it on your one piece of toast that you, you're going to have for the day. And it doesn't look like Rambo made the thing. I mean, those knives that we had, they looked very pedestrian. Yeah. And, and and I like that too. too. As a matter of fact, if you, if you, if it fell on the ground, it just looks like a simple camp knife. It It doesn't look necessarily like it's, there's some nefarious, you know, reason for, for having it. You know, having said that, I think, you know, depending on your training and background, it, it is, and it goes way back to prehistory, uh, having something with an edge and having something with a point and, you know, maybe you might have to defend yourself with it. It doesn't have to be made for that purpose though. I mean, you know, you can, you can defend yourself. You can defend yourself with a butter knife. Yeah. Uh, you'll be fine with it. And but that requires a little bit more training. <laughs> it, it, it does. It does. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, it, it, when you have a knife that, that can do various things sure. immediately when you pull it out of the sheath, I prefer that. Yeah. Uh, I remember, I remember when we were again in that area of, of Kenya, we had uh, some problems with one of the vehicles and there was this crowd that was forming around us. And there was that, that one guy that was clearly yeah, I remember undru- that. Yeah. drunk uh, and on drugs, I suspect eyes completely bloodshot and he picked me. I mean, the biggest guy out of the group. Fortunately. He, yeah. Well, and I don't know because I, I don't know what I would have done with him. I mean, you could see from his hands, he was said he was a boxer and that he wanted to fight and you could see from the condition of his hands that he did do that on a regular basis. I mean, they, they look like, like uh, anvils as opposed to human hands. And uh, those, those points of tension and those points of intensity when we're traveling. Now, fortunately nothing happened. We were able to just through conversation and, and uh, Mr. You know, directing his attention. Otherwise we were able to resolve the situation, but those things can accelerate very quickly. Uh, And it is good to have training and some awareness around that. Yeah, definitely. And, and also in the improvisation of, yeah. of an edged tool or a point, something with a point, yep. uh, it doesn't even have to be that. I mean, you can anything really, right. Uh, pen. Sure. Um, you know, it's something from your toolkit, uh, you know, 
uh, screwdriver. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's endless really when you think about it, but yeah, years but that ag- stuff comes up. Years you know? ago, you gave me a, a pen that I travel with almost exclusively and who makes that? That thing is amazing. Oh, you know what? I, I almost shouldn't give it away, but, okay. but County Calm, oh, okay. they make great really great pens. I mean, I, they fall into the category, I suppose, of tactical, although um, a lot of the it doesn't ones, look they, that tactical. it does. Yeah. And I think I gave you the stainless steel yeah. one. Yeah. And it's, it's with knurling and yeah. they use the uh, Fisher space pen refill. So it's it, really it, heavy and balanced in the hand it, and it writes it beautifully writes really well. Yeah. And it, it writes uh, like, you know, an astronauts, it can be upside down with it or whatever, but also it writes through, like if your, if your paper is wet, it'll still write through onto the paper, you know, and this is like sort of field geek sure. kind of things like, Oh, who cares about that? But actually I do care about that. Cause yeah. you know, if I'm working out in the field and it's foggy or something like that, and I got to write down on my clipboard that I left on the, on the hood of the truck overnight. All right. You know, that, that, that does matter. Yeah, but, for uh, sure. But yeah. They, they're, I, I really like their pens. They're, they're fairly understated. Yeah. What a neat piece of kit for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and speaking of that, what are some, what are some other recent additions to your, to your kit that you've, that you just have kind of fallen in love with? Well, it's gonna, yeah, this will sound a little bit bizarre. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, One of the, uh, the pieces that I don't even know who makes it. It's one of those cubes. Okay. That you inflate. All right. And it has a solar, small solar panel on one side. And this is a light, yeah, it's an sure. LED light. Yeah. And it has like, I think three settings. Luminade maybe? Maybe, but you know, yeah. there's so many people have copied it already. Yeah. And it has like three settings of the LED plus like a flashing, you know, like a strobe. Sure. And it packs completely flat. I use it on every trip now. If yeah. it's just like they're clever, putting it in the bathroom so that you know, in a dark hotel room, you know, that's pitch black because I needed to sleep when I landed. Leave it in the dash or you know somewhere in, you know during the day, recharge it, and it's so simple. Yeah, I think they're really clever, and and I I've thought oftentimes about maybe carrying a couple of them with me when I'm traveling. Cause you know, and think about that family that we encountered in Uganda, the the woman who spoke some English and we helped get her kids to That's the right. school and everything. Wouldn't it have been amazing to give her one of those so yeah. that yeah. way those kids could read maybe later into the night and make it, make a little bit of a difference in her life because I was so impressed by her as a human being. And, um, I'd like to have some of those along with me because they are so compact. They'd be really easy to give away in the ways that make sense after you've established some rapport with somebody, not just, Definitely. just handouts, but that would have been a great, I think, uh, situation for that too. Yeah. And, and recently you and I both got, we bought, both got some down jackets from Patrick at Prometheus design. Oh, that's like, I think one of the coolest things. That's a pretty bitching jacket. It it is. And, uh, all, all down is not created equal. And, uh, the piece that I especially appreciate out of it is on the inside kind of, uh, over your, your rear hip, there is a, uh, a carrying case and I didn't, at first I just thought, okay, that's cool. You know, that's like a stuff sack right. uh, when I opened it up. And then I realized that it's a stuff sack that's shaped like those neck rolls that you use when you fly on an airplane. And that, that's like, I don't, I'm not sure if that's thinking outside the box because everyone knows those, those neck rolls. You go through an airport and you see sure. them, you know, they're all you for see sale, them everywhere. Yeah, yeah. With the batteries and, the, and then the phone chargers. And then they're, they're always there, totally ubiquitous. But with this one, you stuff your down jacket in it. And, and there you go. And then you actually showed me that the whole thing can be turned, not, yeah. not, not that little piece, but the other part into a pillow. Yeah. You, the, the pocket that the neck 
pillow is in is reversible and it's also like fleece lined and you can reverse the whole jacket into that and zip it closed. And then you have a camp pillow, um, which uh, we talk about multi-use things, but it's this kind of mid-weight, slightly heavier than like the typical down, calm down sweaters and stuff that are really popular from Patagonia and North Face. But it's not like something that you would take to the polar region. It isn't. It's it's just the right weight, especially if you layer, it's got a great DWR finish on it. I've been out in the rain and then I was worried about it because of being down and it, it repelled water yeah, for definitely for 20 or 30 minutes when I was out in those conditions hiking. It's also hooded, which is really nice. Um, so and it's the material on the inside of the hood, same as yeah, the pockets, really comfortable, it's comfortable. Yeah. And it doesn't make a lot of noise. It's one of the things I don't like about those nylon finishes is when your head's inside the hoodie or the hood, then it makes all this crackling and and noise. And it doesn't make any of that noise with that fleece lining, which I really like. And then it's got this great chest pocket that I can put an iPhone on and, you know, listen to music or a podcast or whatever, have real quick access to to wallets and stuff like that right there at the chest. So that's actually a really great jacket. Yeah. Prometheus Design Works. We'll put that in the the show notes as well. And Patrick's a cool guy, fellow knife watch, Overland, Overland guy and made in the United States to try to find a, it's a hard. jacket like yeah. that. That's yeah. made in the U S it's very difficult to find small batch companies. So they they may or may not be in stock by the time you just got to tough it out. Yeah. And, you just got to wait, it's plan it. ahead. It's yeah, it's, wait, it's yeah. definitely worth the wait. And then another, another thing that I got recently is uh, a Hasselblad that I'm going to take to, to Africa, which I'm excited to shoot. And you've been a long time Leica shooter, film Leica still. Film Leicas. Yeah. I mean, I also shoot Digi with that uh, Sony Alpha 7, but I have that nice little adapter so I can shoot my, my lights glass with that, with that Sony uh, body. And it's, 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 I, I like it. I like also like the fact that that Sony's pretty small body. It is. And it's, 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 it's familiar to to me having used the Leica as a small M Leica's for so long. It just feels, it feels right. And you've taken some beautiful images. Some of them even have been featured in Overland Journal in black and white. And I remember that was one of the other highlights of our trip. We were again in Kenya and we had camped down this little wash and this kid Heard. And we thought we were in, nobody would find nobody us. Nobody would find, we were in the middle of nowhere. We thought we were really cool. And yeah, right. Yeah. And that's when the Corolla comes by, right? Yeah, but yeah, this, yeah, this exactly. little kid, this little kid was, was hurting camel and up this wash and he sees us with all of our G wagons. He's trying to figure out like, like we're from outer space. And, but he was very curious and very calm and we had no way to communicate with him other than just through basic human communication, hands, hand signals and smiles and things like that. But you ended up handing him, handing him the Leica and showing him how to yeah. advance the oh, yeah. film. Oh, and, yeah. and I think you, you stopped him down. So his, his shots would be, would be uh, clear. And that was just such a neat I have great moment. photos of him taking photos of me Yeah, with the digi and I had the digi camera yeah. and he's shooting the film camera at, at, me and the framing was fine. That would be cool to kind of put together. I think, you know, I think that would be neat. Forth. That would be neat to do. And I remember I took, it's one of my favorite, most favorite photos I've ever taken. And I took it with my iPhone. It was of him holding that Leica and he has this fantastic smile on his face. Um, and I was smiling the same. I, I felt like we, we all felt this real connection with this kid. It, it are the, it's those moments as travelers that are unforgettable and they're so special and they remind me of why that is the stuff that's most important. That's the, 
those are the ingredients of memories. We'll long forget the knife that we brought or some gadget that we added to our vehicle, but we'll never forget those moments because they were so definitive. And it's, and it's, it's just, it's an interaction with a fellow human, right? Somebody who's from a different culture, different yeah, language, different totally. place, but it's a fellow human. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one of the draws, you know, with travel for me anyway. Yeah. And he was uh, just as stoked as we were like, he was, yeah, he and thought and it was the coolest him, thing what is he that we were there. When he goes back, yeah. to, you know, like, you guys won't believe I saw these guys and they were just camping. I don't know why they had to camp in these <laughs> right. tents, you know, right, yeah. these rooftop tents. Yeah. So funny. It was very cool. Yeah. But the interaction, you know, with the, with somebody else and, and just to have a giggle, there was no commonality at all other than that's a fellow human. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the theme of this whole podcast is as we travel, as we travel more, and as we consider travel more, that we begin to step beyond the stuff. We begin to step beyond the vehicle and how we identify with the truck that we drive or the motorcycle that we ride. And we start to become this accumulation of these experiences and these interactions with other human beings around the world. I mean, I think, I think back on that trip, and certainly the G wagons that we were driving were very cool, but it was the time that I spent with you and Stanley and the locals and the people that we interacted with that form the memories and the images that I took away and the stories that I told about that experience. It had very little to do with the gadgets. And I, I really do appreciate your time, Brian, on this stuff because it shows how far back humans have been traveling. As soon as we could find a way to bring enough food or a way to to move across the land with some support. And we started to get outside of our very small zone that we occupied and we started to see what was over the next ridge. And that's been for a lot of human history. And that's what we do today as travelers. And let's interact with that history. Let's respect the cultures that we encounter. Let's be mindful and minimalist in the way that we travel so that it doesn't distract us from those experiences. Uh, yeah, those are definitely great lessons, don't you think? Definitely. And also not imposing any of my standards or norms or expectations upon anybody else. Yeah. I mean, there's, there isn't a reason for it. There yeah. really isn't. And on the individual level, there's, you know, just hang with the locals. And if they do something on a Friday or a Sunday or whatever, participate in it, experience it. Yeah. That pickup yeah, game yeah, of that pickup yeah. game of soccer might be one of the best memories that you'll ever have of your travels or handing a kid a soccer ball or whatever. Those, those kinds of interactions as humans, I think are so valuable and, and so important too. So I really, I really appreciate your time. There's, there's a thousand other things we could talk about. We didn't even get into watches. We didn't get into your Tacoma. We could and everything we like that. To. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we, Brian and I both have an appreciation for unique watches. And one of the reasons for that, and I'll, we'll kind of end it on this, but it's one of the few types of currencies that you can carry with you right on your person. Uh, a, re a recognizable watch brand is a way to have a get out of jail free in a sense, or buy a ticket home. So they're very portable. And, and, uh, I think maybe we'll, we'll schedule another podcast for a year or so from now. We'll, we'll dig into those other things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, we could talk about that. Yeah, we certainly hours could. On end. And we'll, we'll link all of this cool stuff in the show notes, Brian. I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with us this morning and telling us your stories and, and the, that amazing life that you've lived. It's such an inspiration. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, uh, Scott, and look forward to doing it again very soon. Absolutely. Well, thanks everybody for listening.